Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity. This is a mystery podcast. And as always, I am your host, Kadra. And I am excited you guys are here today. I am bringing you a listener-requested story today, but this is also a story that I myself have considered covering. So looking forward to that. As always, we are at the top of the show. So a couple of quick housekeeping things. First and foremost, if you've been enjoying the podcast or the YouTube channel and you haven't done so yet, please leave a five-star review, subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, follow the podcast so you can keep up with new episodes. It really helps the show. It means so much to me. And remember, you can always send topic requests of your own or share a crazy story with me. You can DM me on Instagram, Perplexity Mystery Podcast, or you can email me, Perplexity Mystery Podcast at Gmail. The photos that correlate with each episode are always posted on the Instagram page. And you can also check out my TikTok, which is also Perplexity Mystery Podcast. If you missed last week's episode, definitely go back and check that out after you listen to this. I covered the topic of sleepwalking and shared a couple of stories. And we talked about Kenneth Park, one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. The story of the sleepwalking murderer. So go back and listen to that for sure. I also just wanted to give two quick shout outs. Perplexity has some new listeners in France. So hello to my listeners in France. That is so cool. Thank you for listening. Perplexity now has listeners in 20 countries. So that is all thanks to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I also just wanted to shout out my friend Trey for buying me a coffee. And Trey said, I don't know. You seem chill hags. (laughs) which I have not heard hags in forever. Do you guys remember when we would write hags in our friends' yearbooks? <laughs> maybe maybe I'm too old now. God, do people still do that? <laughs> Good times, though. If you guys want to support the podcast, check out my Buy Me a Coffee link or the podcast support link in the episode description. Trigger warning for today's episode. This episode will contain disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. The sources for today's episode will all be listed in the show notes. Today we will be talking about the Rajneesh movement, which is a cult that started off in India and moved into the US, specifically Oregon, in the 80s. And this movement went on for a pretty long time. The Rajneesh movement, also known as the Rajneeshis or Rajneesh Puram, uh, has a lot of different terms <laughs> that you'll hear throughout the episode. They identified themselves as sannyasins, which we will talk about more later. You can check out more about the Rajneesh movement in the documentary series, Wild Wild Country. They have several episodes that cover this. And there's also an extensive podcast called Building Utopia. And they have, I think like 18 episodes just talking about this movement. So if you wanna do a deep dive, those are two sources that I would recommend. To talk about the Rajneesh movement, we first need to talk about a couple of people. We are first going to talk about a man named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. 
I'll be referring to him as Bhagwan throughout the episode. So Bhagwan was born in Kuchwada, a small village in India, in 1931. He was the oldest of 11 children, and when he was born, his grandfather actually commissioned an astrologer to make Bhagwan's birth chart, which was pretty common in this area. This astrologer predicted Bhagwan would not live past the age of seven, and he refused to make a birth chart for Bhagwan until he turned seven. So at a very young age, Bhagwan was already being introduced to the concept of death. Bhagwan did have health problems from a young age. He had pretty severe asthma, and he also suffered severe smallpox that nearly killed him. But he did eventually reach his seventh birthday, despite the astrologer's prediction, and so the astrologer created a birth chart for him. This time, the astrologer stated he was quite certain Bhagwan would not live past the age of 21. Bhagwan was raised by parents who practiced Jainism. There is a spiritual end goal in Jainism, which is to ultimately become free from the endless cycle of rebirth and to achieve an all-knowing state of mind called moksha. Jainism followers believe moksha can be attained by living a non-violent life. You basically want to have as little of a negative impact on other life forms as possible. They don't believe in a single creator or a single ruler of the universe. They believe in pluralism. Bhagwan was very close with his grandfather, and the same year that he got this ominous birth chart when he was seven years old, his grandfather tragically passed away. This death would completely alter Bhagwan's life. Bhagwan would later refer to his grandfather's death as, quote, the death of all attachments, end quote. Around this time, his parents had also become very busy running the family business for his paternal grandparents. So Bhagwan actually started living with his maternal grandparents so that his parents could run this business. When he lived with his grandparents, he was given a lot of freedom. There wasn't an imposed education or restrictions. And so this had a significant impact on Bhagwan's beliefs in his adulthood. To him, having a lifestyle that was very open, free, independent, was the best, if not the only way, to live. However, at age seven, he did begin to go to school. And while Bhagwan was very intelligent, he was also stubborn and rebellious. He was not used to the structure of a classroom, he often played pranks, and challenged authority. He basically went against every social and societal norm possible. Throughout Rajneesh's childhood, the result of his birth chart also really traumatized him. He feared his impending death constantly and became obsessed with death. In fact, he would often spend his time laying in crematoriums and he would attend funerals of people he didn't know. So definitely creepy and strange. When he became an adolescent, he began to suffer from severe anxiety. During his adolescence, he actually went to a temple where he isolated himself for an entire week, meditating and awaiting his death. Something that I thought was interesting when I was researching this too is I found out when you wholeheartedly believe that you are going to die, it is classified as a near-death experience. 
So we've heard stories of people who went through something traumatic and physical where near, they nearly died, but this can also be classified as a near-death experience when you psychologically believe it. So I thought that was interesting. A near-death experience or an NDE can understandably have a major psychological impact on a person. Visions, out-of-body experiences, and extreme serenity are common phenomena when someone experiences an NDE. It's also common for people to take a new path in life after surviving one. And this seems to be exactly what Bhagwan did. He eventually reached his 21st birthday, and by this point, he considered himself to be an enlightened individual, and he no longer feared death. In fact, he embraced it, and this gave him a lot more freedom. He basically stopped taking life so seriously. Later, he went to college as a young adult, where he got his MA in philosophy. He became a lecturer, a traveling professor, and a speaker during the 1960s. At this point, he's in his late 20s, and his beliefs were seen as highly controversial and alternative in India's culture. Bhagwan was criticized because he often criticized common practices in India. Bhagwan criticized socialism, traditional religion, and the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. So he wasn't very well liked by a lot of the traditional people in this area. He also believed strongly in capitalism and believed that sexual pleasure was the true path to enlightenment, which we will hear a lot more about later. He referenced a lot of different religions in his teachings, basically mixing Eastern and Western beliefs. And he also referenced a lot of famous philosophers, creating his own belief system. But he was also known for being very well-read, intelligent, and he had an excellent memory. He was also known to have a golden tongue. So a lot of people found him enticing. By his 30s, he was hosting meditation camps. His most well-known technique that he created himself was known as dynamic meditation. This meditation technique included four phases. The technique combined physical movement and extremely fast breathing. This was meant to break through emotional breaks in the body. And eventually, in 1968, he began to speak more and more on sex, and this being, again, the true path to enlightenment. And this is when Bhagwan became known as the sex guru. Bhagwan specifically believed in free and open sex, which directly contradicted beliefs of local traditional Hindu communities. This was interesting to me, too, because Bhagwan strongly believed in the importance of sex education for children. And this made conservative Hindu leaders really upset, as they believed these things should be taught privately by family at home. Which sounds very familiar. <laughs> to the controversy behind sex education in the U.S. You know, we have conservatives who believe it should solely be taught by the parents at home and not at all in schools. And we have more of like the democratic side of things who thinks that it should be taught in schools. So I thought it was interesting to hear about that same debate in another part of the world. Now, despite practicing free and open sex, from what I gathered, Bhagwan did not support this concept within the LGBTQIA community, 
or support sex work. So he still had those conservative limitations, um, those closed-minded limitations, and he believed the community's war on sex caused people to sometimes turn towards these unhealthy coping mechanisms, quote unquote. So he didn't have a positive view on those communities. Bhagwan did continue to teach and travel throughout India during the late 60s, and this is when he started to gain a large following. And this makes sense because during the 1960s, there was a sexual revolution. Many people were beginning to reject and question gender roles and lean into sexuality and self-expression. So eventually we reach the 1970s and the 1980s. Keep in mind, this was the time period of the New Age movement, which I talked about in episode 7. Essentially, during the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of cult activity because there was a huge push for spirituality and self-discovery. So as this New Age movement moved west and hit the U.S., people began to get word of Bhagwan and his teachings. He became pretty well-known to the point where many Americans even began to travel to India to meet him. They followed his teachings, practiced meditation, and some followers even moved their families up there, including their children. And a lot of his followers were very well-established. They had careers. They, you know, had families. They were wealthy. They were intelligent, which I think I also talked about in episode seven. Cults want intelligent followers that can contribute. So we see that in this movement as well. The followers identified themselves as sannyasins, which originates from Indian culture, specifically Hinduism. A sannyasin is a religious ascetic who renounces the world by performing their own funeral and abandoning all claims to social or family standing. And an ascetic is someone who has severe self-discipline and avoids all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. The sannyasins that followed Bhagwan were known to wear orange, loose-fitting clothing. So Bhagwan has this huge following now. He specifically had hundreds of thousands of sannyasins learning from him. Dozens of meditation centers for Rajneesh had popped up all over the world. And at these meditation centers, Bhagwan's books and recordings were sold and new followers were gained. At this time, it's estimated he had around 350,000 followers. So this is when the group was at its largest. At this point, Bhagwan had one goal in mind. He wanted to build what he considered an oasis, an enlightened community. And this community would be under his control entirely, consisting of his own practices and beliefs. But in the late 70s and early 80s, Bhagwan began to have health problems. He also went through a major financial scandal. So now we introduce a second major person to this story, a woman named Ma Anand Sheila. And I will be referring to her as Sheila throughout the episode. So Sheila would later become Bhagwan's right-hand woman. And she was essentially in charge of all of Bhagwan's operations. It was Ma Anand Sheila who told Bhagwan they should begin bringing their movement to America. Sheila had a good childhood. She came from a middle-class, privileged family. 
She described her parents as being warm, pure, and intellectual. Her father wanted her to have choices and have an open and well-rounded education, so she met leaders and free thinkers from all walks of life while she was growing up. She would meet Baguan as a child, and later she went to college in the U.S. to study fine arts in New Jersey. And when she was only 18, she married a student named Mark Silverman. But Mark was ill. He had Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer. And they continued to be married throughout their years in college despite this. A few years later, Sheila had to travel back to India to be with her mother, who was recovering from surgery. During this trip back, she went to Bhagwan's commune to listen to some of his teachings. And she got to meet him again as an adult. This was against Bhagwan's typical rules because he didn't typically allow unscheduled meetings. But this time, he made an exception. And sources say when Bhagwan and Sheila met, he took her head to his chest and Sheila looked at him with a completely dissolved heart. She also told Bhagwan about Mark and her constant anxiety of his impending death. And Bhagwan, having a lot of experience with this feeling, reassured Sheila. He told her that she was lucky that they had this constant reminder to basically live fully. This conversation changed Sheila's perspective and her life. Eventually, Mark finished his coursework in New Jersey, and he met with Sheila in India. Sheila is completely besotted with Bhagwan at this point, so Sheila took Mark to meet him. Mark did find Bhagwan to be very intelligent, but he wasn't sold on his teachings as much as Sheila was. But Mark was a supportive husband, and he attended Bhagwan's teachings and meditations with Sheila, and they became sannyasins. Sheila began to see Bhagwan as the only person that mattered. He was her absolute guide, and she was completely devoted to him, which is just what you need for your second-in-command. Sheila was so devoted, in fact, that when Bhagwan sent her and Mark to meditate for three weeks in the mountains, with little heat and little food, she was very excited. This place that they went to meditate at, Pahalgam, was famous for bitter, cold winters. So after this three-week meditation, Bhagwan asked Mark and Sheila to fly back to the U.S. and basically take care of any loose ends that they had in America. You know, like careers, families, <laughs> because this is a cult. So you have to leave all of that behind in order to be devoted. Sheila, Mark, Bhagwan, and a few other select followers eventually began living together in a commune in Bombay. During this time, they all shared one bedroom together. And Sheila would later say she was relieved when this temporary experiment ended. She would finally be able to share a bedroom again with just her husband. <laughs> so they didn't have a lot of privacy during that time. So now going back a little bit, I had mentioned that during the 70s, 80s, Bhagwan's health problems began to escalate. He had asthma, he had bad allergies, but he had also developed diabetes by this point. He's in his 40s. They go through a financial scandal where basically these sannyasins wanted more power and privilege in the group, and they started bribing him with large amounts of money. 
But Baguan ultimately decided he was still the man in charge, and that's how it was going to be. So he became a lot more authoritarian, more selective with who he would allow in his teachings and meditations. And he also had a group of women that rose to power and often helped make a lot of decisions. He referred to them as the power ladies, which I kind of love. Sounds like an aerobic group. But these women would care for Baguan. They managed the day-to-day operations of the sannyasins. But this power was only an illusion that Baguan wanted them to believe. He was the one true person in power. Baguan would often manipulate these women, encouraging competition between them, pitting them against each other, and causing them to feel insecure. So this would often result in arguments. This constant fighting continued to escalate, and eventually it seems to spread throughout the Rajneeshis. Violence was becoming encouraged throughout the group as a whole. In the late 70s, they allowed a West German film group to come in and film their daily activities, including what they called encounter groups. So these groups were held within the commune, where followers were allowed to basically do whatever they wanted. They would yell in the other followers' faces, they would punch people, they would break bones, they would dance crazy, maniacally, they would seize on the floor, they would have orgies. As if all of this wasn't horrifying enough, these encounter groups were done in the nude. So this German film group captures 15 minutes of this on camera. This film goes crazy. It spreads to the United States. The LA Times picks up the story and the film created a major scandal. On top of this, this was right around the time that the mass suicide happened in Jonestown. Many people began to compare Rajneesh Puram to Jonestown. They began to also label it as a concentration camp. So two months after the mass suicide in Jonestown, it's January of 1979, and Baguan conveniently tones down the encounter groups. He publicly announced that violence had fulfilled its function in the group and that it was no longer necessary. So to me, this is all just a front for the media. Remember, Baguan had also been labeled as a sex guru, and many people joined them for free love. And to be quite frank, to have a wide variety of sexual encounters. Women became pregnant, and when they did, it was common practice for these women and teenage girls to not only have abortions, but become sterilized. Children in the group were seen as distractions that would take away from your ability to be completely devoted to Baguan. There were also a lot of rituals with the women in this group that involved sexual assault. In 1980, Mark Silverman, age 33, lost his battle to cancer. Sheila was heartbroken and searched for stability in the commune, but she would not find it here, as violence was still continuing throughout the commune. Broken bones, mental breakdowns, and rape occurred regularly. The commune was also getting overcrowded. This would be a good time to start, you know, kicking people out or disbanding, doing something drastic. But what does Baguan do? <laughs> well, in 1981, he took a vow of silence. 
<laughs> so he just stepped back while this commune is in complete chaos and he's like, peace, <laughs> you'll figure this out yourself. From what I could find, it seems like he only talked to like his most trusted friends, allies in private. So he stopped doing public teachings, like talking to the followers. His followers called this his ultimate phase of his work. But Sheila was not happy about this. And she really had no one else to live for at this point besides Baguan. She also knew that with Baguan stepping back and the commune being a complete disaster, someone had to step up. So it was then Sheila who became the authoritarian of the group. She eventually managed to get her hands on a lot of the money that was being donated to the group as well. And she used this money to build ties in the West. And eventually, between the scandals, political tensions, and financial scandals in India, Bhagwan's health issues, Sheila finally decides it is time for the group to relocate to America. This was alluring to Bhagwan because he was a big fan of capitalism. And Sheila worked to get Bhagwan a passport, but this whole move was kept a secret from the majority of the Sinyasins. Only a select few knew the truth. It seems like this was also kept from Bhagwan's secretary, a woman named Ma Yoga Lakshmi. And from what I could find, it sounds like a lot of people believe there was a power struggle and drama between Lakshmi and Sheila. Ultimately, Sheila was able to manipulate her way to getting Lakshmi out of the picture. Followers were told Bhagwan was moving to northern India, which was a total lie. And people who admire Sheila may see this as a way for her to start this group over and help the group, get rid of violence and materialism that had plagued it. But others who loathe Sheila may see this as her way to manipulate and gain power. Later, Sheila also got remarried, which I couldn't find a lot of information about. In 1981, Bhagwan's visa was granted. This was a tourist visa, and they had told the U.S. consulate that Bhagwan had terrible back pain and that he could only get special treatment for it in the U.S. So they basically lied to the consulate and said this was just temporary, but you'll see later that was clearly not their plan. And this white lie, you'll see, also turns into a pattern throughout the story. Eventually, Sheila laid her eyes on a 64,000-acre ranch in Oregon that would be a perfect place for their new commune. During the time of construction of the ranch, Baguan took his very first flight in an airplane, and he flew to a castle in New Jersey that had been specially prepared for him. He was surrounded by bodyguards, servants, cooks, gardeners, And eventually, his followers got word that he had officially arrived in America. They were ecstatic. Many of them had never met him or interacted with him before. So it sounds like these were followers in America, like that had originally been from there. But when Baguan got word that the commune still had not been built, he was furious. So he basically wasn't told that the ranch was still under construction. Sheila was basically very stressed at this point. She was rushing to get the ranch done. 
She had already, you know, spent millions of dollars on this ranch. There was no backing out. They had purchased it for $5.75 million. So she does everything she can to get this ranch built quickly. They would later call the property Rancho Rajneesh. It is often referred to as well as the Muddy Ranch or the Big Muddy Ranch. The only town nearby this was a very small town known as Antelope. And again, this is in Oregon. Only about 50 people lived in Antelope. Once they purchased this land, they got to work. They built an entire town, including a post office, restaurants, grocery shops, clothing stores, and everything you could imagine to complete a town. At this point, for whatever reason, the Sanyasins were also no longer wearing orange. They started wearing shades of maroon, reds, purples. So their clothing stores sold dozens of styles to choose from, but they were all in the shade of maroon. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. There's a scene in the documentary about this, Wild Wild Country. Some of the sannyasins are in the clothing store and they're like standing in a mirror. They're trying on hats, vests, coats, and they're like panning through the store, but everything in the store is like red and purple. <laughs> the sannyasins also were very big into being completely self-sustained so that they could keep themselves isolated, or at least that's my theory. Uh, they built farms, they recycled, but of course, none of the sannyasins were paid to build or to work. This was out of pure devotion for Bhagwan. They also got a mayor. He went by Krishna Deva. So I think that was a name given to him. A lot of the followers had names given to them. So like, for example, Ma Anand Sheila, that's not her actual name. Sheila is part of her original name, but Ma meant mother. I can't remember what a non meant, but like they were given names from Bhagwan that had special meaning behind them. So I think Krishna Deva was the mayor's given name. Uh, he also went by KD for short. KD had a background as a psychiatrist and a real estate broker. And he became a famous public figure for the Rajneeshis and joined Sheila's inner circle. Bhagwan has become highly materialistic at this point too. He was a huge fan of fancy cars, specifically Rolls Royces. <laughs> so he got a crap ton of those, 100 to be exact, because you need 100 for some reason. And he also got a private jet. He got diamond Rolex watches. And a lot of these were gifted to him from followers and supporters. Perhaps this also had to do with the fact that his thousands of devoted followers had to surrender their bank accounts in order to join the group. So basically, Bhagwan has limited access to money from these successful individuals. Meanwhile, you know, the Rajneeshis are moving in and building right next to this tiny, tiny town of Antelope. So we have the Antelopians, I guess we would call them. <laughs> 50 of them that I'm sure had probably lived there their entire life. And these were simple people. They were farmers, ranchers. So when these strangers built this town next door, Antelope residents were immediately suspicious and distrusting. Now you might be wondering as well, what all of these followers had to do 
to get to Oregon because eventually they started to come in waves and waves and waves. It wasn't just this new following of strictly Americans. People from India and other parts of the world began to fly in. Eventually their numbers came to around 60,000. So what did immigration look like? Well, a lot of the American sannyasins basically married foreign women. In the rush to build this new town and please Bhagwan, Sheila also made a fatal error. The land that they purchased followed very strict zoning laws. And this meant that all private property was still regulated by local officials. It's not clear if Sheila knew this or didn't tell anybody or had no idea, just didn't care. Like, we don't really know. But this was the opposite of what Bhagwan wanted. Like most cults, Bhagwan sought ultimate privacy and control. Which you can't really do when local officials are regulating what you do and what you build. The Rajneeshis were going to build and expand by any means necessary. Like, whatever it takes, we're gonna do it. They started to tell a lot of lies to local officials. Farming was a big one. They would use farming as a front to convince the Oregonians that they were harmless. Sheila basically told them that she was a widowed woman who wanted to dabble in farming. And she just said that they were there to build a giant farm and that everyone that was staying there was just helping her build. So that was a huge lie. When getting dozens and dozens of building permits, they stated it was all for farming. And really this was just an excuse to make more room for their followers. They also lied about how many people would be staying there, but locals knew a lot more about the ranch than the sannyasins realized. They were familiar with this land as a lot of them were farmers. They knew that the land that they had purchased was basically dirt and rock that hadn't been well kept. So the more that the sannyasins boasted about their farming ventures, the more skeptical local townspeople became. Then they bought two commercial lots in Antelope. So there's already a lot of skepticism. People are suspicious. They're getting a little paranoid. And then the Rajneeshis buy two lots in their little town. These lots that they purchased would become a welcome center for new arrivals to the ranch. But this was also a good place for the people of Antelope to go and get a good look at these sannyasins. So the story of these mysterious sannyasins coming spread like wildfire, and the press eventually found out Sheila's connection to Bhagwan. Journalists began to ask Sheila if she had plans to build a spiritual commune on the ranch, an outrageous accusation that she continued to deny in the press. So another lie. Eventually, though, Bhagwan came to the ranch and the cat was out of the bag. Oh, and also when Bhagwan came, it was kind of spur of the moment. So he told Sheila that he was coming like two days before he showed up. And the place still wasn't ready yet. She had a triple wide trailer for him, but it wasn't ready. Utilities weren't ready. The foundation wasn't ready. Uh, landscaping. So the sannyasins go into a full panic. Sheila's freaking out. 
And Sheila claimed later that it all worked out. They were able to get it together. She claimed Baguan liked the commune, while other former sannyasins claimed that he complained about the landscape, saying it was really dusty and there were no trees. Uh, they were in the desert, essentially. So building in this very dusty desert probably wasn't the best idea <laughs> for your guru that has severe allergies. <laughs> the sannyasins continued to expand and eventually they were trying to build more and more an antelope. And this is when their permits started to get denied by local authorities. So at this point, millions of dollars, months and months of work has been put in by the sannyasins. So they're all in, there's no backing down. They're gonna expand. They're gonna take over this town of antelope. KD, the mayor, studied the laws and found ways to work around these permit denials. <laughs> so at this point, peaceful coexistence with the sannyasins and the people of Antelope was simply not an option. Legal battles waged on. The Antelope City Council ultimately set a vote to disincorporate the town of Antelope. And this would result in the town having no local government of its own. And this would eliminate the possibility of any new urban development. The Antelopians do this in the hopes that it will keep the Rajneeshis from expanding more and building into their town. As a counterattack, Sheila tried to convince the people of Antelope to move out of town and also tried to move the Rajneeshis into Antelope so that they could vote against this. There was also a harassment campaign where KD and other sannyasins started going door to door to the Antelopians' homes, and they would try to strong arm them into basically getting out of town and selling their houses. Many Rajneeshis also would have loud, wild parties to intentionally disrupt the quiet that the citizens of Antelope enjoyed. Some citizens were also followed around by sannyasins with cameras. They would take pictures of them to simply mock them, harass them, and take away their privacy. The sannyasins would even show up to people's workplaces, standing there for hours on end, watching them. One sannyasin put a nail into the tire of a Wasco County planner while he attended a conference. So this is where they just are getting really ridiculous, really immature, right? <laughs> it's like high school teenagers playing pranks on each other, seeing who can one-up each other, except it's all one-sided. <laughs> Sheila even held a door open for the state deputy's district attorney, his arms full of legal books. As he passed, Sheila stuck out her foot and tripped him, and all the Rajneeshis laughed. Like, how old are we? <laughs> what the hell? Ma Anand Puja, a nurse that worked closely with Sheila, supervised the ranch's medical department. Occasionally, Puja went into a secret laboratory hidden in a canyon. And this was on the ranch. Um, this is where she liked to experiment with viruses and bacteria. Great, right? We really like where this story is going. <laughs> so it's the summer of 1984, and Pooja distributes vials of a mysterious brown liquid to devoted followers. 
While she does not tell the followers what is in this liquid, it would later be identified as salmonella. Salmonella can result in food poisoning, and in rare cases, it can be fatal. Over a period of months, Puja and other devoted sannyasins would spread the poison in the nearby big cities, hoping to sicken public officials standing in their way from expanding further. They spread salmonella in the bathroom of the Wasco County Courthouse. They contaminated their own hands and shook hands with people at political rallies. <laughs> Sheila even took half a dozen sannyasins to a grocery store where they poured the brown liquid all over produce. But there were no public records of people getting sick. This is when Sheila realized they needed to think bigger. Three Wasco County officials eventually arrived at the ranch for a tour, and their van conveniently got a flat tire. <laughs> the sannyasins kindly offered to repair the flat tire for the low, low price of $12. <laughs> While the officials waited in the hot sun, Pooja approached and kindly offered the men a glass of water. So sweet. All of the officials accepted the water and drank it, and soon after, they became very sick. One of the officials got so sick that he had to be hospitalized. The doctor told the hospitalized man that he was very lucky he got treatment when he did, because if not, he would have certainly died. This official would later say publicly that he concluded the Rajneeshis had poisoned him. They deny this, of course, but they're not exactly being subtle. <laughs> the sannyasins also went into numerous restaurants and poisoned the restaurant food with the liquid vials of salmonella. Pooja managed to poison a salad bar at a local restaurant. And the local waiting rooms, emergency rooms, and clinics quickly began to overflow, with people all experiencing the same symptoms. They all suspected the Rajneeshis. <laughs> Why salmonella poisoning was the first thing that came to their mind when it came to gaining political power and suppressing votes? I have no idea. They really thought giving people diarrhea would somehow make them more powerful? I don't know. The Rajneeshis then chartered buses in cities, coast to coast, filling them with homeless people. They promised food, alcohol, and a place to eat. They were then registered to vote. But turns out a lot of these homeless individuals were not of the most sound mind. So fights began to break out throughout the commune. So what did the sannyasins do? They drugged them by putting Haldol, a very strong tranquilizer, into beer kegs. Eventually the homeless people were sick of staying at this commune and even they couldn't handle it. <laughs> so they left, but Sheila basically dispersed them throughout all these small towns in Oregon. So then these towns suddenly had a homeless epidemic. Sheila then met with the governor's team, demanding assistance with Baguan's visa so that he wouldn't be deported. She also demanded construction on their land be allowed to continue. And in return, she would get these homeless people out of Oregon. The team agreed to none of this. 
And ultimately, when it finally came time for the disincorporation vote, Sheila had managed to get about double the amount of the original citizens of Antelope to move in. These people were loyal to Sheila and Baguan. So eventually, the Rajneeshis had their own city. Sheila's husband became in charge of their police force, and on November 2nd, 1982, Sanyasins eventually managed to completely take over Antelope. They captured the mayor's seat and three of six city council positions. Sheila also became more and more inflammatory in the media, yelling and berating people in the press. And Sheila did this with Baguan's blessing. In fact, Baguan thought Sheila was being too mild in the press. This is when Sheila also began to become paranoid. She was developing major trust issues with the sannyasins. She even bugged Baguan's house with hidden microphones because she didn't trust other people coming to visit him. State and local authorities were also worried that local residents might attack the commune because there was so much hostility at this point. The Oregon State Police and National Guard prepared to mobilize 10,000 soldiers if necessary, which seems very generous to me, considering all the shit that the Sanyasins have been pulling. <laughs> With all of this pranking and poisoning and political drama, the Sanyasins were no longer unified. They were all paranoid as well. They were fighting more and more, and they were also split on the decision, like if they were moving in the right direction as a group or not. Was it right for them to poison people? Was it right to take over this town? Some of the sannyasins began to crack under pressure. They agreed to give information to the governor and local officials about what was really going on at the ranch. They also began to dislike Sheila, and her public meltdowns. Sheila's paranoia continued to escalate and she developed severe anxiety. She started relying on medications, including a drip line for sedation. Sheila also attempted to burn down the county planner's office, a man named Dan Durow. Her thought process was that he couldn't act against the commune if his office was destroyed. <laughs> But this plan was unsuccessful, causing only minimal damage. Because when the sannyasins started this fire, the fire source was these candles. And um, after they lit the candles, they climbed out of this window and then they closed the window, depriving the candles of oxygen. <laughs> so this starved the fire and there was very minimal damage to the point that Durow was able to move back into his office in just two weeks. A $1 million fine was brought against the commune for illegal wiring. Federal investigators also began to look into the commune for immigration fraud. So tension is continuing to build. Baguan was also going to stand legal charges. Sheila also began to make bad business deals and at one point, they got sued for $1.7 million, and the guy that sued them won. So they're losing money. While all of this is going on, everybody's freaking out, except Baguan. <laughs> this guy is not the least bit concerned. He insisted that they continue and that they think bigger. He wanted to get more Rolls Royces. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, read the room, dude. <laughs> also, he wanted to get Rolls Royces so that, I shit you not, he could be in the Guinness Book of World Records <laughs> to be the man with the most Rolls Royces. And um, he also demanded a $1 million watch. He basically just told Sheila, dip into the funds. <laughs> It'll be fine. So this guy's completely out of touch with reality, clearly, like a lot of cult leaders are. And Sheila eventually had a meeting with the Sanyasins saying enough was enough and they needed to stop being cowards. The people attacking the commune needed to be killed. Sheila then gave a hit list including the U.S. attorney for Oregon, who was leading the investigation at the commune for immigration fraud. But not everyone on the commune was convinced of Sheila's plan. So Sheila left to talk to Baguan. She recorded their conversation and returned, playing it for the followers. Baguan said, quote, If 10,000 had to die and save one enlightened master, so be it. End quote. So you can tell he cares a lot about his followers. Eventually, enough sannyasins, including assassins, were on board for the operation to begin. They would go through this hit list one by one. They set up a safe house in Portland to scout the attorney's home. On one occasion, two assassins sat in a McDonald's in downtown Portland near the attorney's office, monitoring him. They considered killing him in the parking lot, but they realized there was not an easy way to escape. <laughs> Dave Fromier, state attorney general, and James Comney, a Wasco County commissioner, were also targeted. Pooja went to St. Vincent Hospital in summer of 1985 to kill James Comney. He was there as a patient recovering from ear surgery. She brought with her a mixture that could be injected into his IV to stop his heart. When she arrived and got a look at Comedy, she realized he wasn't on an IV. <laughs> so she ran away from the hospital. She panicked. <laughs> so then Sheila convinced the other sannyasins that Bhagwan's doctors and caretaker were a threat to the guru and that they had to be killed. All of these attempts failed. The closest they got was when one sannyasin injected Baguan's British doctor with adrenaline, but he was able to get to the hospital and get treatment and survive. Eventually, many of the sannyasins stopped listening to Sheila and the murder plots ceased. <laughs> After Labor Day in 1985, Sheila fled the commune and went to Europe, taking evidence with her to expose Baguan. So she flipped on him. The evidence included video recorded tapes of conversations with Baguan, miniature hypodermic needles, such as the ones used to attack the doctor, and written documentation and compiled notes from time at the ranch. She managed to get a dozen or so followers to join her in Germany. The ranch quickly fell apart after Sheila left, and in the press, Baguan broke his vow of silence, <laughs> blaming Sheila for all of the crimes. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Let me look it up really quick. He says something amazing. Yeah, when he broke his uh, vow of silence, 
he called her a perfect bitch. <laughs> Let me see if this will pick up in the audio. <laughs> oh my god, it's too good. I don't know if it's gonna pick up though. <laughs> I love it so much. You take a vow of silence for four years, and that is the first thing you say publicly. It's amazing. So eventually, legal proceedings began. One sannyasin went to court, admitting to their crimes. Pooja struck a deal that included federal prison time and admitted to attempted murder, poisoning county officials, setting fire to a county office, and setting up an elaborate wiretapping network on the commune's telephone system. Baguan attempted to flee the country on a charter jet, but he was caught, handcuffed, and booked in Portland. His lawyers cut a deal, and he was deported as a convicted felon, guilty of immigration crimes. Poisoned victims also sued the Rajneeshis, and the Rajneesh businesses went bankrupt, the ranch was eventually sold to a wealthy rancher from Montana who turned the ranch into a Christian youth camp. Bhagwan ended up in India and renamed himself Osho. Bhagwan, or Osho, died in 1990, but his words did not die with him. In fact, Rajneesh meditation centers are still intact and running today. His teachings continue to be distributed, and Sheila and Pooja were sentenced to 24-year sentences in federal prison, but Sheila was released after only serving two and a half years. She then immediately left and relocated to Switzerland, December 13th, 1988. She married a Swiss sannyasin and gained immunity from extradition for future charges. <laughs> She then started a new profession, owning and managing two nursing homes. How wonderful. <laughs> so perhaps the ultimate mystery here is why? <laughs> why did all of this happen? In the words of Rusty King, a man who has devoted thousands of hours to studying Baguan, quote, the main thing I figured out is when you start to question anything in Baguan's orbit, the people, the politics, the crimes, it just creates more questions. And that's exactly how he wanted it." End quote. It's likely we'll never know what was going through Baguan's mind when all of this happened, or Sheila's mind for that matter, but one cannot deny it is certainly perplexing. And that is the story of Rajneesh Puram, also known as the Rajneesh Movement. Such an insane story. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please remember those ways you can support the podcast. You can check out the support links in the episode description. You can also follow the podcast, hit the five-star button, if you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. It really helps the show so much. And you can always request stories or share a crazy story of your own with me by DMing me on Instagram. Uh, Perplexity Mystery Podcast is the Instagram. You can also send me an email, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. 
Be sure to also check out my TikTok and follow me there. That's Perplexity Mystery Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Bye!